I'm Christopher Leiden with Peter Hessler, the New Yorker magazine's first full-time correspondent in China through the miracle growth first decade of this century. Reading Peter Hessler on the ground in the villages, it's the price to the health and sanity of the Chinese people that you wonder about. On the path to first place in world standings, have the Chinese found a way for human beings to live This is open source from the Watson Institute at Brown University. We call it an American conversation with global attitude. Peter Hessler, your own New Yorker pieces, your books read like conversations with your readers, conversations with yourself in a way about some very basic human questions. My first one is how do people, families, children, marriages cope with change at the Chinese rate? You know, looking at it from a distance, I feel like sometimes Americans have this idea of unrest and dissent, and we're very focused on this with a place like China that's run by Communist Party, which seems outdated to us. And, and there's, you know, there's there's various protests that happen in a country of that size, and people are always yeah. wondering, is it stable? Is it going to fall apart? And it's interesting. I mean, as the years passed, I, I didn't feel that sort of instability to be so significant. You know, I didn't feel like this was a politically unstable place. And and it hasn't really surprised me that it has functioned as well as it has in many ways. But I did sense a lot of instability within communities, within families, and within individuals. And I I think it's a difficult time for the Chinese. And often the ones who have succeeded have a lot of trouble. You know, that's often the issue for them, just because Mm -hmm. lives have been have been turned upside down and, you know, people are moving. You have so many migrants. People are, are, are having to learn how to function in a totally new economy. They, they have to be highly competitive. It's exhilarating, but I think it's also wearing on people, and it's tough on interpersonal relationships. Yeah. I want you to introduce this guy, Wei Zichi, mm-hmm. who you write a lot about. And what you observe is that as he gets richer, more successful, he's also getting less healthy all the time. Mm. But just generally, I wanted to pick up in your observation that in what we think of as a tremendously traditional society, China, the new China is also brand new to most Chinese. I mean, they mm. haven't been to this place before either. Yeah, yeah. No, I describe this as sort of a revelation that I had after. I mean, you first go to China. I, I showed up in China as a Peace Corps volunteer and didn't speak the language. And so for two years, I was trying to catch up, I felt like, and really focused on trying to be <laughs> trying to learn Mandarin, first of all, but also just figuring out what's going on. And and you feel like everybody else is in on the game and you're not. But after a certain point, I realized that a lot of people there feel the same way almost. I mean, not the, not with the language, but with the uh, just figuring out how things work because it's new to them. And, and to some degree, even language. I mean, I was in Sichuan and many of these people are now migrants. People I knew, they have to improve their Mandarin and, and, and learn how to function. So there's all sorts of things that Chinese people have to pick up in order to function in this new society. So, you know, it's a nation of learners, really. But in your stories... They're never terribly far from feeling that they're drowning, that they can't keep up. In some ways, what saves people is, is, is the intensity of the experience, and they're so driven and so focused that often there isn't a lot of time for reflection. I think sometimes if they had a little more perspective and context, it, it might blow them away um, because they're just they're in the midst of it. You know, they're caught in the current, and they're just you know they're struggling to keep up. I, I find that they do a remarkable job of, of surviving this, and, and, and they are incredibly this generation of people are they're incredibly flexible. Um, and, and they're not afraid of risk. You know, th- those are the qualities that the longer I stay there, the more I came away with. Um, but at the same time, it's a tough society. You know, this is, I, I, people can be pretty hard on each other. You know, and that's something that I noticed more also over time. It, it's hard on marriages and hard on families. And I'd love you to 
go into detail about that. And maybe, we, and maybe in the story of Wei Zichi, mm-hmm. if I've got his name right, you met him and got to know him very, very well in a town, a small town, a declining town, where you had found a second home. Yeah, now this is, you know, one of the big stories in China is migration. I think now the number they have is about 140 million people who have left the countryside. China was traditionally about 80% agrarian. Almost everybody was a farmer, subsistence farmer. And, and that has changed. And these are the people who moved to factory towns and, and you know, construction sites and staffing businesses in, in these new cities. And so this is the massive change in China. And of course, what they're leaving behind are villages and rural communities. And in many of these places, um, you know, the communities really have declined. And there's very few people of working age left. In the first part of this book, I did a driving trip across northern China, which has been hit particularly hard um, by migration. And you're mm. going through all these villages that really are emptying out. And you'd often see nobody except the older people and the very young children who are still being raised there. But everybody in their 20s and 30s and 40s is gone. Um, And so after that journey, I was more mobile because I had a car and I wanted to have a home outside of Beijing. This was in about 2001, I guess it was. And I just had realized that you go to these places and first of all, there's houses everywhere that nobody's living in. So at Mm. that time, it was very easy to find a house. And so a friend and I just started driving around north of Beijing in the regions of the Great Wall, and we found a village called Sancha, which was just beautiful. Had a dirt road that went up to the village, very isolated, the road dead-ended there, um, and really spectacular, rugged countryside, and and found a house. And, you Mm. know, initially my idea was that this was a place to sort of escape the city and to write in peace, but it became something very different to me. I mean, it sort of became pretty much my home community in a sense. And these were the people in Beijing that I was really closest to. Um, and I, you know, I, I knew them for the next seven years. And in particular, the family that you mentioned, the Wei family. And Wei Zichi was the father um, who had been a farmer. He had tried migrating, didn't like the factory routine, longed for sort of the independence and, and space of the village and went back. Very, you know, somewhat of an unusual path. So he was one mm-hmm. of the very few young people. He was in his 30s when I moved out there. But what what happened in that village is what happens in places that are close to cities. The city began to encroach and began to appear. And and there it happened in the form of a new road. Um, The road was paved after I'd been there for about a year. And in China, when a road is paved, like many developing countries, things really change, Um, whether it's a highway going through a region or, in this case, just, just a paved road. People from the city could go out. People from the village had better access to get out. You could sell your goods to more competitive bidders. You know, really a massive change by something as simple as a road. Um, and this was also about the time that Beijing was going through a huge car boom. People, middle class and upper class people being able to afford automobiles. And so they were exploring the countryside and starting to show up in towns like this. And Wei Jiqi was one of the first ones to see this happening. I mean, he was really an unusual person. doesn't have much formal education um, but very bright and had sort of educated himself in a lot of ways. And he had this vision that this could be a place where people from the city would want to go and that he could maybe start a restaurant, a guest house. <laughs> and so I sort of watched him through this experience over the years, going from being – when I knew him, he was just a farmer when I met him. Um, and by the end of my time there, by the end of this book, he was you know the wealthiest person in the village and the first successful entrepreneur in this community. What's the curve of his, of his happiness – through all this. Yeah, it's it's hard to, you know, it, it's sort of 
hard to quantify. I mean, he this was something he dreamed of doing, and he really wanted to do this. And so he started first a little restaurant, then it became a guest house, and he became very successful. And I, I was with him through a number of, of events, and one of the first one I describe in the book is actually his son becoming very sick, and, and mm. to the point where his, his life was in danger, and and Weijichi and I and the other family members had to work together to try to get him medical care and, and, and find care in Beijing, which is a big issue for somebody from the countryside. So we sort of had that experience. And then I the next year was when his business really started to take off. And one thing that really struck me initially was he had been so incredibly calm while his son was sick and, and very rational and very easy to talk to and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, um, amazingly stoic through that experience. And I found him much more unsettled by, by the business, his initial business success. Um, he had some loans, but they weren't egregious, you know. But but he, but he was very stressed about that. He was very stressed about his business, much more so than when his son was sick. And then I realized, well, people in this village are used to people being sick. They're used to children, you know, even being seriously ill, where their lives are in danger. They've been through this before. That's an experience that they know how to handle, in a sense. But they're not used to having a loan out. They're not used to having a new business. They're not used to trying to interact with city folk who are customers. And, and that was harder for him. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very natural. But to me, it was, it was sort of striking because I would have, an American who had gone through this illness with a child would have, would have been devastated at points. And, and he never had that reaction. But, but he was much more stressed by, the, you know, by having a loan, which doesn't stress out Americans very much. Maybe yeah. it does now. But. Well, how, how did he treat his anxiety or his, or his blues? Well, the thing about business in China is it comes with a lot of vices. And, and you know, when I first met him, he was, you know, he had a very healthy lifestyle. He was working in the fields and so on. And in China, if you're a businessman, you smoke. It's part of, mm. it, that's part of the routine. So that was one of the first things he did once he started doing business was he began to smoke. And, and you have to do that because when you're meeting a client, a customer, you, you offer him cigarettes or he might offer you cigarettes. It's, it's a very important type of communication between males in China. Women aren't really part of it and women rarely smoke, but most men doing business smoke. Um, you know, and especially from sort of the middle class and, and especially these kind of folks who were coming from the countryside to become sort of more urban people. So it was very important. So he started smoking. He also started drinking because you take people out to banquets and, and you drink Baijiu, the Chinese very strong wine with them. Um, you know, and these things affected his health, you know, so he became much less healthy as a result of his business. The more successful he became, you know, the more he smoked and the more he drank. Do people like that pop pills in China? He didn't, you know, but his his wife sort of had... A different response to this in that his wife, Cao Chunmei, she did a lot of the labor for his business. He was sort of the face of the thing and he would go out and get and get materials and, and, and find sources for, for goods and for food and so on that he would bring back to the village and he would, you know, wine and dine guests and, and glad hand them. And she did a lot of the cooking. She's an excellent cook. Um, but it made her really busy, you know, and so it created a sort of stress for her as well. She liked, you know, a more peaceful lifestyle that you'd had in the countryside. But now she's working over, you know, in a hot kitchen all the time. Um, and she didn't have time to go exercise. She started to put on weight and she became very self-conscious about her appearance, actually. And this is, again, contact with city folk. I mean, there was one time when a woman came from the city and, and wanted to go look at the kitchen where they where the where the farmers cook and she she's Tao Chumay working over the walk there and she says, Oh, your hands are so black. 
but Tsao was really hurt by that, you know, she, she and she realized, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dirty. These people think I look dirty. And, and, and so she started being very careful about her dress and her appearance. And she start, you know, would dye her hair and, and, and would try to keep herself as clean as possible. And she became concerned about her weight. And uh, she did use medicines for that. A lot of, there's a lot of Chinese diet pills, which often are sort of, they're basically amphetamines, you know, they're, they're not good for you. I remember one period in the summer she lost quite a bit of weight, must have been 15, 20 pounds, but really seemed dazed when I, you know, my friend and I, my friend Mimi, who I rented the house with, we were going out there and we were concerned about her, you know, and, and, and she stopped taking those things. But I, I think, you know, she also became less healthy, you know, and then the same thing was true for their son. They had a son, Wei Jia, who was about five when I first went out there, um, just a typical countryside kid, roamed everywhere in the fields and in the hills and, and you know, very simple, didn't, didn't have toys and so on. And but by the time he was 11 and 12, they had become relatively wealthy by local standards. They had cable television with about 70 <laughs> channels. And, and he was encouraged to do his homework so he could get into college. So he became very inactive and became overweight. You know, So in this case, each of the members of the family mm-hmm. was really striking. As their living standard improved, their health definitely declined for all three of them. Th- that's the big theme that I took from your New Yorker pieces and this book, Country Driving. You write, from what I saw, China's greatest turmoil was more personal and internal. Many people were searching. They longed for some kind of religious or philosophical truth, and they wanted a meaningful connection with others. They had trouble applying past experiences to current challenges. Parents and children occupied different worlds, and marriages were compacted. Rarely did I know a Chinese couple who seemed happy together. It was all but impossible for people to keep their bearings in a country that changed so fast. Mm -hmm. That's still sort of important news to me. Yeah. No, I mean, this was a sense sort of at the end of the decade in China that I I really feel like this is their issue. You know, this is what their issue is. I mean, I think we see it sort of as communism and big picture politics. But for them, I think it's much more personal, you know, and and, and this is a common, has been a common response to these changes. Um, Like, for example, Cao Chimei, the the wife of Wei Jiqi that I mentioned, I mean, she became religious as a result of these pressures. She became Buddhist, and she felt a lot better after she set up a shrine and began to pray. And so that was her response. And you do have mm-hmm. sort of a revival of religion starting in China. But it's it's interesting. There's this strong personal instinct to do this, but it's still institutionally very weak. So when she became Buddhist, does she go to a temple? Is there a community? Does she have a you know prayer group? Or who knows? No. You know, it's still mm-hmm. pretty lonely. and And that's... I think that's a real issue because when you do have a society where things tend to have been sort of run by the state down and it has not been the kind of thing where you grassroots start an NGO or start a community organization, the Communist Party doesn't encourage that. You know, They don't want independent organizations developing. They don't want a new religion developing. That's what happened with Falun Gong. You know? mm. And so the institutions tend to be pretty weak and the communities tend to be weak. And I, I think that's what people need in many ways. And, and I don't know what fills that void. You see people searching. Um, there definitely has not been a solution yet, I feel like. And I think this is something mm. that over the next 10 years we're going to see playing out in people's lives. To me, it's especially fascinating because since the economic crisis, certainly since the China Olympics in '08, I mean, I live by the cliche in a way that other things being equal, which they never are, China wins the economic crisis. They have the cash, they have the market, they have the production. And between the lines and all the headlines, month after month, it seems to me that's sort of 
holds true, they're gaining in a fashion mm-hmm. in what we compulsively think of as a as a race to be number one. Mm-hmm. But this puts it in a very different light, I must say. Yeah, yeah. No, I think my response when the crisis hit was that I did feel like China would probably be okay, and partly because they didn't have the sort of credit patterns that the U.S. and and, and other places had, and 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 just the stage of economic development they're at. And so I think that is true. That sort of in the big picture, they've done well, but. When you live there and you're on the ground and 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 you're you know you're involved in people's lives, you realize that you know the issues are different. It's not just how much stuff you're making on assembly lines or you know whatever the GDP is. There mm. there are issues of of how society functions and, and 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 how people feel about their communities. And you know I I moved back to America in 2007. I was going back to China that year in 2008, and and since then I've been based pretty much in the U.S. and this is a time when Americans don't feel that great about themselves and don't feel that great about their society. And, and, you know, there is a lot of negative. I mean, it, but it's, to me, it's quite striking because I feel like things work very well here. And, and to me, it's sort of nice to be back in a place where, you know, you just see more examples of common decency, basically. And, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's not a dog eat dog world, but it's all, not just that. It's also how people are involved in communities. Um, you know, I'm working on a piece now about a guy in a small town in Colorado and just the roles he plays in this community to kind of keep it going. And he, I, I never saw something like that in China. You know, somebody's really extending himself with no personal benefit just because he cares about other people and he cares about the community mm-hmm. he lives in. And I think those connections are – they're hard to make in China. You know, civil society has is a different thing from the economic strength or the economic growth. Um, That's fascinating to me. I'm always interested when I go out of this country to be reminded of what I miss about this mm-hmm. place. Um, music or people or that kind of civic mm-hmm. player. What, what do you miss about China or do you miss anything? I think the main thing that, that I always liked in China was the energy of the place. And it just it does have this real buzz to it, you know, and, 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 and people are just on the move and they're aggressive and, and, uh, they're interesting. Um, I, I think also it's a very funny place, you know, and, and funny, ha ha. Yeah, no, it's, it's very, like. there's just <laughs> silly stuff going on all the time. People do ridiculous. Things. I describe it in driving, you know, I mean, you see some guy with his truck frozen on the side of the road and he's lighting highway flares to try to thaw out his fuel lines. I mean, it's, you can only laugh, right? I mean, you can keep your distance as well. But I, you know, it's, it's just, and people there are very good humored. You know, Chinese are really funny. They, they have, they, they get the joke too, you know, which is nice, you know, and I've always felt that as a writer, when things are translated in Chinese, like they understand what, you know, why something is funny. It's one of the reasons I, I, I like living there. I found, I think in that sense, Chinese are actually very similar to Americans in certain ways. They're both informal cultures. Um, they're quite open. Um, they don't really have a lot of rules. This often surprises Americans because they confuse China with Japan. And, and, and Japan is a very formal culture. It's easy to, to offend somebody in Japan. It's not that easy in China. You know, people are like, well, whatever. He's doing things different. He's a foreigner. You know, I moved into that village and it was hard to get, you know, politically because the party was nervous about it. But the, the people I live next door, to it wasn't hard. You know, they're, they're like, oh, that's a foreigner. He's doing things differently, but he's fine. You know, that's sort of their response. And they're also, they are, they're good humor. They have good sense of humor. Um, and this is a time when people are doing all kinds of different stuff, and it's often funny. Mm. Yeah. Peter Hester, nobody has ever written in such detail about the manufacture of bra rings as you have. And that, too, is an instructive story, even about the economic crisis, but about 
people too. What do you hear from the Browering Factory, which was going out of business when you wrote about it? Yeah, the last I heard, I need to get back in touch with them. They're always moving around, and it's hard to keep track of people in factory towns, but they were doing fine. And that was a funny, I mean, it wasn't what I set out to write about. I was writing about development in a small city um, in, a, in, a, in a, it's south of Shanghai, a province called Zhejiang, and the city was called Lishui. And it was just a place near a new highway that was starting to develop. And so I, I figured one of my strategies in China was I realized that if you stay in touch with people and communities over long periods of time, you witness change and people get comfortable with you. They they talk to you openly and you can watch them do things. You can figure out how things work. And and so that that was really the main thing I was trying to do as a journalist. And in this town, I realized this place is going to develop fast if I make a trip here every month for two years there'll be all sorts of interesting things I'll see. And and fairly early in that process, I just happened to be an entrepreneur who was in town to design his his factory. Just saw him standing by the road and chatted, had a conversation, watched him design his factory. And one thing led to another. I ended up following these guys for two years. And the product, when I first met him, he said, oh, we make clothing and accessories. And, <laughs> and I had no idea what that meant. And the next time I visited, they had this huge machine. And I was like, well, what are your clothing? He gave, showed me this little wire. And he's like, I was like, what's this for? And he said, oh, it's to make women more beautiful. And he held it up to his chest, and I realized it was the, the wire that goes into a brassiere. Um, and that had been the product they had been making. And, and now they were shifting to a more sophisticated product, which is the tiny little ring that a bra strap goes through. So these guys, they're a whole world, and they invested their life savings and research and everything in pieces of brassieres. You know, it was deadly serious to them. It's a sort of this object that we would never think about in the States, but it turned out that there was a whole world there. You know, it was enough to occupy my research for a lot of time. And I ended up knowing a lot about that product and the history of it. And, you know, there had been, you know, stolen blueprints for machines to make this thing. There had been death threats. People had disappeared. I mean, you know, this was sort of an epic world around this little <laughs> ring that weighs like half a gram. And what's the future of it? This is the thing. I mean, in China, the you know, as this boss told me when when I met him earlier on, he said, you know, ten years ago, all you had to do was find a new product, find something that nobody was making, and then you could make money. And one of his early products had been that sort of white lining that's inside of of trousers, you know, like mm. the pockets and so on, mm -hmm. um, which is made of non woven fabric and it's it's cheap easy to make and that's what he had specialized in but then that, you know things like that started to get more competitive people in china would copy each other and communities would would often be engaged in making the same and so he said you can't do that anymore you, well you can't do it and make money you can make a little bit of money but the margins are really small so he said you know now you need to find something that you can make at a high volume and it has to be enough investment to sort of weed out the copycats at least initially and so that's why they were looking for those rings because it took them $65,000 to put in the machinery. Then they got to hire a, a pretty skilled technician, and, and then they can start to produce these things. Um, and there's going to be, you know, and then there's another stage beyond that. You know, what's, and I think this is another big question for China is that they really have dominated the low end manufacturing, mm. but there's not many profits there. You know, and I, I think when Americans talk about jobs going over there and so on, I, I think that's a little exaggerated because, I mean, I watch people making these things, and I don't believe that. America's been a developed country for 100 years so we can manufacture objects like that. Like, that's not something that Americans should be manufacturing. And the Chinese don't really want to make stuff like that either. They'd rather be doing higher-end stuff. They'd rather be innovating. They'd rather be more creative, making things that are more sophisticated. Um, and so... If we have trains into the future in this country, apparently they'll be Chinese. 
Yeah, no, I mean their 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 rail development is is really been amazing. I mean, and especially the last two years, there's all sorts of high speed rail lines. So things like that, I think they like to do things like that. But this sort of very cheap product that that has been a real cornerstone of their development for the last ten, fifteen years. Um, there's limited payoffs for that, and it depends. You know, China was different from the states in that when it, the industrial revolution happened in the U.S. and it happened in, in Europe, one of the big drivers um, was actually a shortage of labor. You know, when you looked at America in the 1800s, you hire a worker to make something to manufacture it. And if he makes enough money, he wants to buy farms that people in the States did or move west, homestead, find something, you know, be independent. And so manufacturers at that time had to be efficient. And that's how they, you know, that sort of inspired the assembly line and the American system of standardization. These were ways of saving labor because the businessmen had 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 to do this. This was a pressure on them. And the Chinese Industrial Revolution has been motivated by something different. It's been motivated by markets overseas, basically, that there's a demand for these sort of products. And China happens to have a lot of labor. And so it's easy for them to put in the same kind of assembly lines that America was doing 50 years ago or something uh, and make these products. But the problem, you know, when you have all this labor, it helps you make that low end stuff. But it doesn't, it doesn't force you to innovate. It doesn't force you to be efficient. And I think that's a real issue there. You know, they they have 140 million migrants, but there's, you know, there's another 600 million people on the farms, and they don't need that many farmers in China. And so, as long as you have this huge labor supply, there isn't much incentive to make a better assembly line or you know to make a better manufacturing process. Um, so they've had this initial jump, but I think the next stage is, is, is harder to see. And it also depends on education. And, and I think in China, the education system has not kept pace with the, with, with the economic system in terms of there's this incredible energy. Right, that. It's still not what we expect, even as we, you know, President Obama trying to crank up American education to compete. It's a surprise to read that the Chinese aren't there yet by a long shot. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, there's a lot of commentary about how the Chinese are so great in education and the test scores are so high and, and you know, America is like, I mean, but it's interesting. I don't, I know a lot of people who taught in China. I, I spent two years teaching there and, mm. and I have, my former students are teachers. I've, I've gone to their classes. I hear from them a lot. This boy that I wrote about in the Wei family, I went to his school and followed his education. And I don't know any foreigner who's taught in China who has that feeling that like, this is a dominant education system. This is really working well. Mm. Um, people who have a closer contact with the education system there tend to be more negative, if anything. Um, a lot of those test scores and things, I mean, in math, there's no question that they're, they push math in a way that Americans don't, and they test higher in math. And a lot of those comparisons come from math because it's an easy thing to test. But math is a very discrete skill, and it's easy to bump up somebody's scores through specific training, you know? Um, but if you're talking about analytical thinking and language training, all these other things, they're a lot, they're harder to quantify, but they're also harder to improve in a, at, at a quick pace. So I think all of those comparisons are really skewed toward math, you know? But when I look at my own education and what it took for me to become somebody who could, you know, who could learn another language and who could write about it and compare and, and sort of analyze things, I just don't see how I ever could have done that out of a Chinese school system. I mean, I've found it's so much dependent on group learning. It's so much dependent on rote learning. Um, and those were things I really resisted as a student in the States. I had a lot of problems in school as, as a kid in the States because I wanted to do my own thing, you know, but there was enough leeway for me to do it, basically. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't tend to be, I'm certainly not intimidated by the Chinese education system. I think 
one of their great strengths is the faith in education, and so it's encouraged by everybody. And you never meet a parent in China who doesn't have some sort of education or aspirations for their child. Even somebody who's illiterate is going to value education and is going to want their child to become more educated than him. Or in the states, you know, we have big communities that are basically disengaged from education. Um, so I think that is an issue. But as far as how the schools work and what they learn, their strategies, um, there's a long way to go there. People are fascinated with Amy Chua's, you know, Chinese mama critique mm-hmm. of American education. But it dawns on us that she's an American mother. Mm-hmm. Did you meet Amy Chua's in China or do you have to come here to mm-hmm. to see them? Yeah, I mean, she's not Chinese. I mean, she didn't – she doesn't speak Chinese. I think her family's via the Philippines – um, so I don't think she spent any significant time in China. Um, what she's writing about is maybe a certain immigrant pattern. Mm. It's also a class pattern, you know. She's a highly educated, competitive person. Her husband and her are both teach at Yale. And this is, you know, people in that class will handle child raising differently. And so I think the China label is one that sort of conveniently scares Americans or, you know, <laughs> or intimidates them in some way. But it's something a little different than that. I mean, but it is true that the sort of having a very programmed approach to education is Chinese, you know, in, in the sense of kids, you know, the groups function in a certain very specific way. The classes are organized in a specific way. They're, you know, they're on certain tracks. Um, and, and parents will have their kids doing music lessons and, and, and other types of lessons. And, and, and they want to, they want to manage it basically. And there isn't a lot of free time for kids. Um, but it's not exactly the same thing she's doing, I would say. Peter Hessler, I have a very different puzzle in my head about China since you left. It's the view of Tiananmen Square two decades ago through our experience of Tahrir Square in Cairo. Of course, we rooted for the protesters in China in 1989, but we never really expected the rulers of that country to hand over the regime Mm -hmm. on that basis. In Cairo, we do. And I'm wondering all sorts of things now about the way we accept or don't accept totalitarian regimes Hmm. over there. Did people like me let China off the hook too lightly for the massacre in Tiananmen Square, for the brutality and the, you know, the despotism that 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 revealed? Well, we weren't giving the Chinese a billion dollars a year for military aid, I guess. I mean, that was... true. I think that that's... I think... The big difference we see in a place like Egypt is that it's not it hasn't been a very well functioning economy, you know? And and there haven't been a lot of avenues for people to you know, to sort of not, I'm not talking about expression, but just for opportunity. You know, this it hasn't been is a very mobile society. China over the past ten years has been a very mobile society. There's lots of opportunities. There's no surprise that there's no big protest there. But even in the late eighties, you know, when the things happened in Tiananmen Square um, that was, a, you know, the economic reforms were taking hold at that point. And, and so I, I, th- I think that helped the regime stay in power. Um, be- but go back to the beginning. You're, you write a lot about personal turmoil and unhappiness in China. Can you imagine that taking a f- sort of frontal political direction again? I think the energies are very focused on the individuals and on their their personal lives in this particular generation. People are concerned about what can I do to improve my position and to improve my family's position. Um, 
it's part of that lack of community spirit in a way, you know, and, and if, if, if an issue doesn't affect you directly, you really don't want to get involved. And partly because there are lots of opportunities for improvement. So it's like if I'm a smart young person, I taught a lot of these people. You know, you're a kid like my student who took the name William Jefferson Foster, really smart kid, analytically really sharp, understood everything that's going on, knows how people use power and don't. And what has he done with his with his smarts and his education has become a very successful teacher, you know, and become financially very stable and supporting his family. That's what he's done. He hasn't used it to push the system. He's done a couple of very quiet things that sort of you know, he exposed some corruption in, the, in, in his local education bureau and did that in a very subtle and smart way. But it was quiet. You know, he has, he's not going to take the lead on something that's, mm. that's going to push down. But it's not in his interest yet, you know. And I think, it, you know, in the book I sort of mentioned that, you know, I talk about this. And, well, when does it happen? I think it's more when people who are sort of middle class, educated, and upper class, once those people start to feel like their opportunities are really getting limited by the system, then I feel like they might start to push. Um, and maybe also some more community, you know, more of a sense of community. So I don't know. I don't know when it, when it happens. It could happen tomorrow. I could be totally wrong. But my gut feeling has always been a decade or more, basically, away, you know, before you see a significant change on the political. It's fascinating to me, Peter Hester, to hear you say how sweet it is to come home to, you know, our town, good old USA. What should we learn from that? about ourselves, about what we still think of as a kind of race with China. It's not a race. It's not a zero-sum game, basically. It's part of the lesson. And, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with, 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 with China having these improvements and the U.S. also doing whatever it can. I don't think it's as directly competitive as people say. And I think China and the U.S. have been good for each other, basically, over the last 20 years. It's, mm-hmm. it's great for the U.S. that this has been a stable part of the world. And and it's nice that we that we're not putting out fires in China or trying to, you know, run their show for them. I mean, in, in some ways, I'm very grateful for that. You know, Americans can be a little overactive and 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 want they want to have an influence everywhere. And sometimes it's nice to say, well, this is a place that they're doing things that the way we wouldn't do them. I wouldn't want to be a Chinese citizen, but people there, it's their choice, and 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 this is the system they've set up, and at least it functions, and and, and we can understand them. We can you know, do business with them and, and have exchanges and, and it works basically. And so that's sort of my reaction. But I, I feel like, you know, I think Americans should appreciate the, the that sense of community is a strength and it's something that the Americans don't want to lose. I think also education is a strength and I think we need to realize how valuable that is. Um, it's This is still the place where people go for college and go graduate school if they can from China, from Europe, all over the place. And we want to make sure that doesn't change. Peter Hesser, you've made China interesting person by person for a long time now. We miss you out there, but it's generous of you to share so much of it with us on Open Source. Thank you. Thank you for your book. Thank you for your writing. Thank you for this conversation. Yeah, thank you, Chris. It's my pleasure, and I'm, I'm happy to be back and to talk about China and the U.S. Ben Mandelkern produced and edited this conversation. It isn't over until you feed back on our website, radioopensource.org. I'm Christopher Leiden. Thank you for being part of the conversation. 